You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and a veteran story. And we have Pete on the line with his guest, Jeff. But before we get started, I wanted to uh, make one announcement. And, uh, you know, it's, this is to all veterans. But my best friend, my roommate in college, and my roommate after he returned from Vietnam, and my best friend is facing eight hours or more of surgery this morning at MD Anderson, and uh, it's not a not a pretty surgery, I'm afraid. Uh, he will be in uh, in the hospital at least three weeks, and then in uh, physical therapy, learning how to talk again for months and we don't know how long exactly but J. Roy is has been my best friend for over 50 years and I would appreciate if all you veterans and anyone out there listening either now or in the future on our archive to take just a moment and say a silent prayer for J. Roy and um, I know there are a lot of other Folks from from Korea to Vietnam to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, that need our thoughts and prayers. That there are brothers that served, and so we're starting a new thing. And and Pete Mecca has been gracious enough to give me just a couple of seconds here to mention if you have someone or you are a veteran and feel like you need your brother's prayers then just email me, and we'll be glad to dedicate one of our many veteran shows to you. And we'll also ask that all all brothers pray for our other brothers that have served and have been either physically wounded or mentally wounded. And we don't know whether these wounds show up like in uh, J. Roy's situation. This started about uh, 40 years after no, I, I take that back. Probably about 30 years after he returned from Vietnam and has suffered incredibly. So please take just a moment right now to think of my friend that's going. He's headed into surgery as we speak. And, uh, he was, uh, he came out, uh, he was an E7 and, uh, infantry and he got plastered by Agent Orange. And has had many physical problems besides the one that he's uh, working on today. So this show is dedicated to my friend J. Roy and our brother in the Army and military. So with that being said, I'm going to turn the, the show over to Pete and his guest. Pete, it's all yours. Well, thank you, David. Uh, a great, great thing that you're doing for all the veterans and especially our boys with the, uh, and my brothers with Agent Orange. All right, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Today, September 2nd, is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. Nazi Germany had surrendered to Allied forces in May of 1945, bringing the European War to an end. But it was on this day, September 2nd, 1945, that representatives of the Empire of Japan signed the instrument of surrender aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, bringing a complete end to World War II. The deadliest war in history, about 76 million people were killed, with approximately 10 million of those deaths 
Asia at the hands of the Imperial Japanese. Joining me today and making a second appearance on a veteran story is Jeff Johnson, an expert on the Pacific War. Jeff and I will discuss the atomic bomb missions on Japan and Operation Downfall, the U.S. invasion of the Japanese homelands that was planned to take place 75 years ago this November, had the Pacific War continued. Jeff is a veteran U.S. Navy. Having After leaving the Navy, my buddy Jeff returned to Japan where he worked as a civilian in Tokyo before coming back to the U.S. with his beautiful Japanese wife, Mayumi, who was born and raised in Nagasaki. Jeff is my aide-de-camp, where I am commander of the Atlanta World War II Roundtable. He is a member of the Georgia chapter and a member of the Commemorative Air Force. He served as a technical advisor for National Geographic on its television and magazine commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. Welcome back to the show. Well, hello, Pete. Thanks for having me on this uh, very special uh, anniversary in history. The museum of the Mighty 8th Air Force in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, how'd that go, Jeff? Yeah, well, it went great. I, uh, I gave a one-hour presentation. Uh, my presentation is packed with a lot of imagery. I even create animation and sound effects about the atomic bomb and the planned invasion of Japan. Uh, the presentation was live-streamed, uh, and there were people watching from overseas, and that was pretty exciting. Uh, the museum is outstanding. I even got to spend some time setting inside a B-17 flying fortress that's on display there. Uh, the staff was wonderful, and uh, I, I highly recommend a trip to the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force in Savannah for anyone interested in World War II history. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Jeff, uh, when I had you on the show back in July. We discussed the atomic bomb missions on Japan. Uh, we didn't have enough time to get to all the details of the second atomic bomb mission on Nagasaki. I'd like to revisit that second mission and then get into Operation Downfall, the planned invasion of Japan. Uh, most people don't realize that the second atomic bomb mission almost ended in failure. Take us through that, Jeff. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, let me first set the stage by pointing out some things about atomic bomb missions uh, in general. Uh, it's important to understand that the atomic bombs were a huge gamble. U.S. leaders really didn't know whether the atomic bombs would convince Japan's leaders to surrender. Uh, the U.S. had been laying waste to Japanese cities since March of 1945 with incendiary firebombing raids involving hundreds of B-29 Superfortress bombers and killing thousands of Japanese civilians. Uh, the March 10th, 1945 firebombing of Tokyo alone killed 100,000 people, more than will be killed by each of the atomic bombs. That raid on Tokyo remains the deadliest single act of warfare in history, yet the militarists in control of the Japanese government remain determined to keep fighting despite the slaughter of Japanese civilians. So you must understand, the first atomic bomb will not introduce a larger scale of destruction compared to the firebombing raids on Japanese cities. The atomic bombs are just more efficient, doing the same amount of damage to a city with just one bomb. So from that perspective, U.S. leaders knew it was possible for the Japanese leadership to shrug off the atomic bombs. Now, the two atomic bomb missions, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were conducted by the 509th Composite Group of the 20th U.S. Army Air Force, commanded by Paul Tibbetts from the Pacific island of Tinian in the Marianas. 
Most of Japan is within striking range of B-29 Super Fight Fortresses uh, operating from Kenyan. Now, the top secret program to develop the atomic bombs, called the Manhattan Project, it cost $2 billion. The program to develop the delivery platform, the B-29 Super Fortress, cost $3 billion. Uh, the B-29 was the only bomber in the U.S. arsenal with a bomb bay capable of delivering atomic bombs. Now, this is important to know. With most bombing missions, there is a primary target and a backup target. You need a backup target just in case you cannot get to the primary target for whatever reason. And this was the situation with the atomic bomb missions. On August 6, 1945, there were actually three Japanese target cities. Hiroshima, the primary, Kokura, the secondary, and Nagasaki, the tertiary. Now, when most people think of the atomic bomb missions, they envision a lone B-29 superfortress dropping an atomic bomb on a Japanese city, like the Enola Gay over Hiroshima. However, several B-29 superfortresses took part in both atomic bomb missions. So in addition to the strike plane, which carries the atomic bomb, you have B-29s acting as weather planes that take off first and fly over the target cities to report on weather conditions. Weather conditions will determine which city will be bombed. There are also two escort B-29s that fly with the strike plane to the target. One escort is an instruments plane. At the moment that the strike plane drops the atomic bomb, the instruments plane will drop three radio zones by parachute. These are devices that measure radiation levels from the atomic explosion and transmit that data back to Tenyon. The other escort B-29 is a camera plane that will film the atomic explosion from a safe distance. Now, the first atomic bomb mission on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, well, it was executed perfectly by Paul Tibbetts piloting the Enola Gay. The weather was good. All the B-29s taking part in the mission performed flawlessly, and Hiroshima, the primary target, was hit on time, while Kokura, the secondary target, and Nagasaki, the tertiary target, were spared. Now, the second atomic bomb mission, three days later on August 9th, involving Major Charles Sweeney piloting boxcar, well, that was a near failure, and I think a much more fascinating mission than the first mission, just about Everything that could go wrong with a bombing mission did go wrong. Uh, Jeff, you say that Nagasaki was not the primary target for the second atomic bomb. What can you tell us about Kakura and why it was the primary target for the second atomic bomb instead of Nagasaki? Uh, yeah, well, um, Kokura is the location of the Kokura arsenal, Japan's largest still-standing arsenal, where all sorts of weapons are being manufactured. Naval guns, tanks, artillery, small arms, you name it. And U.S. planners for Operation Downfall, the planned invasion of the Japanese home islands, well, they suspect that Kokura, the arsenal there, is making chemical weapons. The U.S. fully expects Japanese defenders to use chemical weapons on invading U.S. troops during Operation Downfall. This is why Kokura was the secondary target on August 6th, it is now the primary target on August 9th. Nagasaki, with its Mitsubishi steelworks industry, is a lesser military target than Kokura. 
Okay, I understand you have a personal connection with the city of Kakura. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, Kakura is actually the hometown of my father-in-law, Toshio Matsunaga. Uh, Toshio was 10 years old in August of 1945, and living in a house with his mother and several siblings, 2.2 miles from the Kokura Arsenal, placing them within the kill zone of the second and more powerful atomic bomb. All right. Now, go ahead and take us through that second atomic bomb mission on August the 9th, 1945. Yeah, well, things actually start to go wrong the day before on August 8th. Technicians on Kenyan accidentally insert a cable assembly backwards inside the Fat Man atomic bomb, which caused a risky repair effort. There was at least some chance the bomb could have detonated during repair work. Uh, that would have destroyed the entire island of Tinian and all the B-29 stationed there. Uh, the Japanese, as you can imagine, would have been highly amused. Also, on August 8th, 221 B-29s firebombed the city of Yawata, located about five miles to the west of Kokura. This raid on Yawata will have an unintended impact on the second atomic bomb mission. And that brings us to the early hours of August 9th, 1945. Uh, there was a pre-flight briefing on Tinian. The rendezvous point for the strike plane and its two escort planes is changed from Iwo Jima to Yakushima due to bad weather over Iwo Jima. Now, Yakushima is a small island close to the coast of southwestern Japan. The rendezvous point is where the strike plane, the instruments plane, and the camera plane will form up before heading to the target city. Charles Sweeney, the pilot of Boxcar, is ordered by Paul Tibbetts to wait no more then 15 minutes over Yakushima for the two escort planes to join up and to go to the target city without the escort planes if they don't show up. So we get further along on August 9th, early hours of that morning, and there is a pre-flight check on Boxcar. A fuel pump on one of Boxcar's 600-gallon reserve fuel tanks is discovered to be faulty. Charles Sweeney decides to fly boxcar with the malfunctioning reserve fuel pump. Sweeney doesn't think the reserve fuel will be needed for the mission. So now, the mission begins, August 9, 1945. The first plane to take off is the Enola Gay, which dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. But this time, she's a weather plane. The Enola Gay heads for the primary target of Kokura, while the second weather plane takes off for the secondary target of Nagasaki. About an hour later, Boxcar takes off from Tinian, followed by its two escort planes, the Great Artiste, which is the instruments plane, and the Big Stink, the camera plane. Now, a few hours after takeoff from Tinian, weaponeers aboard Boxcar notice a warning light indicating that Fat Man is about to detonate at any moment. They look inside the bomb, and they discover that they had improperly armed Fat Man shortly after takeoff. They flip two switches inside Fat Man, and the warning light stops blinking. Now, had Boxcar dipped below 15,000 feet, Fat Man would have detonated. Now, I'll take us five hours into the flight. Boxcar arrives over the rendezvous point of Yakushima Island, 
and spots the instruments plane, the great artiste. The camera plane, Big Stink, is nowhere to be found. So the hits just keep on coming. Wow. All right, Jeff, this brings us to our first commercial break. We'll continue discussing the second atomic bomb mission of World War II after we return. And, Pete, uh, I want to go ahead and make sure everybody heard or listened to uh, the fact that uh, this show and my whole day-to-day is going to be dedicated to my friend J-Roy that's going through some extensive surgery, and so it's uh, my prerogative to, to do that type of thing as the owner, and uh, I'd like to mention the fact that if anyone is suffering, a veteran is suffering, or you have a friend that is a veteran that's suffering and you'd like to have a silent prayer said for him during the day, contact us and we will dedicate that day or that show if if you want his name or her name mentioned. And uh, we do a number of different veteran shows. And also want to mention the other fact, too, that uh, this show and other veteran shows are in support of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's just across the street from the Capitol in the uh, Floyd Building, uh, and it is something you should see, as well as the Healing Wall in Johns Creek, Georgia, and the Memorial in Peachtree Corner. So all of this is for the veterans. Please pass it on to your veteran friends that we we want to be and some of these illnesses and some of these diseases come along 20 30 40 years later and it doesn't matter what war when just let us know and we'll be glad to say and ask all veterans to pray and the more we have um, praying for somebody the more likely it is to be listened to so with that being said Let's go back to Pete and Jeff and continue World War II in the Pacific. All right. Thank you, David. Uh, We're back with my friend Jeff Johnson on the 75th anniversary of the surrender of the Empire of Japan. That took place on September 2nd, 1945. We're talking about the second atomic bomb mission on Japan, a mission in which just about everything is going wrong. Jeff, uh, pick up where we left off uh, uh, before the break. Yeah, sure. So uh, we're five hours into the second atomic bomb mission, and the B-29 boxcar arrives over the rendezvous point of Yakushima Island and immediately spots the Great Artiste, which is the instruments plane. But these two planes cannot spot the Big Stink, the camera plane. Now, Big Stink is actually flying over the rendezvous point, but at an altitude 9,000 feet too high. So several minutes pass and Major James Hopkins, the pilot of the Big Stink, he decides to break radio silence, and he transmits a question back to the 509th Composite Group on Tinian. He asks, has Sweeney aborted? Question mark. But Hopkins', Hopkins message is, is garbled in transmission, and Tinian hears, Sweeney aborted, period. So Paul Tibbetts, back on Tinian, he thinks the mission has been scrubbed. The 509th doesn't know exactly what happened. They don't know if boxcar and an atomic bomb had crashed into the ocean, gotten lost. They have no idea. All they know is that Sweeney aborted the second atomic bomb mission for reasons unknown. 
Now, Charles Sweeney on Boxcar, he's oblivious to this garbled message, and he circles Yakushima with the great artiste for 45 minutes. This is 30 minutes too long, burning valuable fuel and wasting valuable time. Sweeney has disobeyed Paul Tibbetts' order to wait no more than 15 minutes over the rendezvous point. Enola Gay had previously reported three-tenths clouds and improving conditions over Kokura. So Sweeney finally heads to Kokura with the great artiste and without the camera plane, the big stink. Now, Japan is notorious for bad and unpredictable bombing weather. When Boxcar and the great artiste finally arrive over Kokura, they find the city covered with haze and smoke. Winds have changed direction since Enola Gay earlier reported favorable bombing weather. To make matters worse, seven-tenths heavy clouds have now rolled in. Smoke from the fire bombings of Yawata the day before is covering the Kokura arsenal. Boxcar's bombardier, Captain Kermit Behan, he is under strict orders to make visual contact with the Kokura arsenal through his northern bombsite before dropping Fat Man. He is not to use unreliable radar targeting. So Boxcar makes a run on Kokura. The Bombay doors are open, Fat Man is armed, but Behan cannot see the arsenal through the smoke and clouds. So Behan calls no drop as flak from Japanese anti-aircraft guns start to fire on Boxcar and the Great Artiste 30,000 feet above. The Sweeney increases altitude to 31,000 feet to throw off Japanese anti-aircraft gunners, and he makes a second run on the Kokura arsenal. But again, Bombardier Behan cannot see the arsenal. He calls no drop once more. At this point, Boxcar's radar picks up about 10 Japanese fighters making altitude. Boxcar is running out of time and fuel, and flak is getting closer. Sweeney increases altitude to 32,000 feet and makes a third run on the Kokura arsenal from the opposite direction. Yet once again, Bombardier Behan calls no drop. The arsenal remains obscured by smoke, haze, and clouds. So now Boxcar is critically low on fuel, and Sweeney has only two options. He can make a fourth run on the Kokura arsenal and hope for a break in the clouds, or he can abort Kokura and attempt a bomb run on the secondary target of Nagasaki. In either case, Boxcar does not have enough fuel remaining to fly back to Tinian. After dropping Fat Man on one of these two targets, Sweeney will attempt to fly Boxcar to a U.S. airfield on Okinawa to refuel. Sweeney believes that he will likely have to ditch Boxcar in the ocean en route to Okinawa, and he hopes his crew will be picked up by air-sea rescue. So Sweeney decides to abort Kokura and head for Nagasaki. And if Nagasaki can't be bombed, Sweeney will drop the Fat Man atomic bomb into the ocean on the way to Okinawa. So Sweeney puts Boxcar into an abrupt right turn to the southwest in the direction of Nagasaki, and he nearly collides with the great artiste, with an atomic bomb on board, no less. Now, when Boxcar and the great artiste finally reach Nagasaki, they find more bad weather. The secondary target of downtown Nagasaki is entirely cloud-covered. 
Now, since they only have one shot at Nagasaki, Sweeney orders Fat Man to be dropped by radar targeting, and he begins the bomb run. But at the last moment, Bombardier Behan, he spots a small opening in the clouds. The opening is over a racetrack to the north of downtown Nagasaki. So Behan switches from radar targeting to visual targeting and aims Fat Man at this opening. 45 seconds later, the second atomic bomb explodes 1.5 miles off target and inside a river valley with mountains on both sides. This resulted in less death and destruction than had the bomb been dropped on downtown Nagasaki. So compare 45,000 people killed by the blast of Nagasaki compared to 80,000 people killed at Hiroshima, and the Nagasaki bomb was actually a more powerful bomb. Now, after dropping Fat Man, Sweeney heads straight for Okinawa. And as he approaches Okinawa, boxcar's engines begin shutting down on approach to the Yotan airfield there. But the airfield doesn't know boxcar is coming, and there are people and planes all over the place. So Sweeney radios a mayday call to the control tower, to the control tower, I should say, and he orders that every emergency flare on board be shot from boxcar. Well, these flares finally get the attention of the airfield, and man and planes are quickly moved off the runway. So Sweeney basically performs a controlled crash landing and narrowly misses plowing into a roll of B-24 Liberators parked at the end of the runway. This is how the second atomic bomb mission ended. The mission was indeed a near failure, plagued by one mishap after another. Jeff, what do you think was the main reason for boxcar uh, to fail to drop the second atomic bomb on uh, Kakura? Was it the change in the weather? Was it Sweeney's fault? Uh, where does the blame lay? Well, I think it's a combination of weather, mechanical issues, and ultimately Charles Sweeney's uh, failure to maintain command of the mission. Paul Tibbetts felt that Sweeney blew the mission, particularly by, ling uh, by lingering uh, too long over the rendezvous point at Yakushima. However, General Curtis LeMay had wanted Tibbetts to command both the first and second atomic bomb missions, but Tibbetts chose his friend Charles Sweeney to command the second. Sweeney, unlike Tibbetts, had never flown a combat mission. So I think part of the blame lays with Tibbetts for selecting Sweeney to command the second mission. I think you can say that had Paul Tibbetts commanded both the first and second atomic bomb missions, Tokura would have been hit with the second atomic bomb, and my father-in-law, Toshio Matsunaga, would have been killed, and Nagasaki would have been spared. Wow. Those are some really fascinating facts about the second atomic bomb mission. Now, five days later, on August 14, 1945, the uh, Japanese announced that they would accept the terms of the Potsdam, uh, Potsdam uh, Declaration. Would the United States have dropped a third bomb had Japan not announced its intention to surrender? Uh, there were materials for a third atomic bomb being prepared for uh, transmit from California to Tinian when the Japanese announced their intention to surrender on August 14th. However, it's really uncertain whether a third atomic bomb would have been dropped on another Japanese city. Uh, General George C. Marshall, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he did not support dropping atomic bombs 
on Japanese cities in the first place. Marshall wasn't convinced that doing so would force the Japanese to surrender. He felt atomic bombs would be better used tactically against Japanese troops during the planned U.S. invasion of Japan. So it's really uncertain, but I think had a third atomic bomb been dropped, I think it likely would have been dropped on Niigata, Yokohama, or Kokura. But why not Tokyo? Did the U.S. ever consider dropping atomic bomb on Tokyo? Uh, no, and there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that. First, Tokyo had already been mostly destroyed by the firebombing raids. There really wasn't much left in Tokyo to drop an atomic bomb on. And secondly, the U.S. did not want to kill Emperor Hirohito, who lived at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. The U.S. knew that only Hirohito had the authority to force a surrender, so we needed him alive. We were counting on Hirohito to come to his senses and convince the militarists controlling the Japanese government to accept the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. Huh. All right, well, let's assume that the Japanese did not surrender after the two atomic bombs that were dropped. That brings us up to Operation Downfall, the planned invasion of Japan. Take us through that. Yeah, sure. So uh, the first thing to consider about the planned invasion of Japan is that there was no guarantee the U.S. would have won that invasion. I think the U.S. probably would have won, but at a tremendous cost in both American and Japanese lives. It's possible that the American people would have become so fed up with the body count that they would have demanded uh, a truce. That was a real risk. Now, this is important to, for everyone to understand. Throughout the Pacific War, the U.S. military conducted an island-hopping campaign across the Pacific on its way to Japan, but against Japanese island garrisons that were typically cut off from resupply and reinforcement. The U.S. wisely skipped over several Japanese-controlled islands, leaving Japanese soldiers stationed there to die by starvation rather than by American bullets and bombs. And throughout the Pacific War, the United States never took on the bulk of the Imperial Japanese Army stationed in China, known as the Kwandung Army, and the several Japanese divisions stationed in the home islands. An, an, an invasion of Japan would have pitted the U.S. Army and Marine Corps against the bulk of the Japanese Imperial, Imperial Army for the very first time in the war. Japanese leaders were anticipating a U.S. invasion which they believed would be a decisive battle that Japan could win. Huh. Well, why was it necessary for the U.S. to invade Japan to end the Pacific War? Assuming the atomic bomb did not convince them to surrender, could the war have ended without an invasion of the Japanese home islands? Well, there are critics of the atomic bombs that believe that both hey, the Rick. atomic bombs... Oops, break time. Yeah, hey, Jeff, we're going to have to break for, uh, for a, a commercial. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends okay, who support okay? and love the one caught I in its grasp. What should be yeah. the course of treatment? Hey, hey, Pete, who is the go. best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? Hey, you're saying that you we know that you want answers to these to and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
they can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. Okay, Jeff, let's continue on. Uh, could we have won that war without invading the Japanese homelands? Yeah, so uh, like I was saying before we, we broke, there are critics of the atomic bombs that believe that both the atomic bombs and an invasion of the Japanese home island was not necessary to end the war. Uh, but I disagree with them. You must understand the perspective of Truman and the U.S. military leaders. World War One was fresh in their mind. They saw how an armistice, an incomplete victory over Germany in World War One eventually led to a bloodier second war. This is why the Allies drove into Germany in 1945. So suppose it's 1945, May of 1945. Hitler is dead, and the Nazis approach the Allies with an armistice proposal that will end the fighting in Europe and keep the Nazis in control of Germany. Well, that would be outrageous and unacceptable. So U.S. leaders felt the same way about Imperial Japan. They believed the militarists controlling Japan would have to be uprooted like the Nazis had been. If the U.S. stopped short of replacing the military government in Japan, they could expect a bloodier Pacific War in the future. This required unconditional surrender and boots on the ground inside Japan. Well, you know, there, there are critics that say the atomic bombs or the invasion of Japan wasn't necessary because we could have used a naval blockade or maybe uh, uh, bombed them in submission. What do you say about that? Well, a U.S. naval blockade was actually being considered, and it was supported by the U.S. Navy over an invasion. However, where U.S. planners decided that a naval blockade would take two to three years to be successful, and it would likely result in a conditional surrender that left the Japanese militarists in control of Japan. The U.S. Army Air Force supported a continued air campaign against Japan, believing that air power would force the Japanese to surrender. So there's some politics involved here with the Army, the Navy, and the U.S. Army Air Forces. All wanted to be credited for ending the Pacific War, and the latter wanted to justify becoming an independent branch of the U.S. military after the war. But the bottom mm. line is that U.S. Yeah. planners concluded that an invasion of Japan will be necessary yeah, to yeah. end the Pacific War and prevent a second one. That's, that's very interesting, Jeff. Um, at a high level, how would the invasion of Japan have played out? What was the U.S. strategy? Well, an invasion of Japan would have been much different than the Allied invasion of uh, France on D-Day. Uh, the war in Europe was fought okay, on a large geographical scale, with U.S. and British forces moving towards Germany 
along a broad western front and the Soviets moving towards Germany along a broad eastern front. The invasion of Japan would have been much more surgical. So when you think of Japan, it has four islands. It's got Hokkaido to the north, Honshu in the center, which Tokyo is located, Shikoku to the south, and Kyushu to the southwest. The island-hopping campaign resulted in the U.S. capture of Okinawa, located close to Kyushu in the southwest. The U.S. will use Okinawa as a staging base to launch the invasion of Japan. Now, Operation Downfall is comprised of two phases. The first phase, Operation Olympic, the invasion of Kyushu, is scheduled for X day, November 1st, 1945. Olympic will involve a U.S. invasion force four times the size of the D-Day landing force in Europe. The U.S. will invade the southern tip of Kyushu, capture the port city of Kagoshima, and 22 known Japanese airfields. And we will use this tiny piece of Japan as an airbase to soften up the rest of Japan for phase two, known as Operation Coronet. Operation Olympic, the first phase, is expected to take four months to complete. The second phase, Operation Coronet, the invasion of Honshu, is scheduled for Y Day, March 1st, 1946. During Coronet, U.S. forces will hit the beaches on Honshu, south of Tokyo, then fight their way north and capture Tokyo by December of 1946 to force an unconditional Japanese surrender. Wow. All right, there's been a lot of debate about casualty estimates about the invasion. We hear about a million U.S. casualty figures. Uh, is there an official casualty estimate on both U.S. and Japanese lives? Well, there is no official casualty estimate that all U.S. commanders agreed on. U.S. planners eventually agreed on uh, 500,000 up to a million U.S. killed and 5 million to 10 million Japanese killed. Now, compare this to 400,000 U.S. servicemen killed in all of World War II and around 200,000 Japanese killed by the atomic bombs. Now, casualty estimates, this is important for everyone to understand, casualty estimates varied during the buildup to the planned invasion of Japan, and critics of the atomic bombs will often cite early low casualty estimates, but the critics fail to recognize something that's very important. The U.S. code-breaking program, known as MAGIC, allowed U.S. planners to monitor Japanese communications and detect a massive buildup of Japanese divisions at the landing beaches in Japan. So by August of 1945, the U.S. War Department fully expects to lose up to one million men. Wow. Okay. The Japanese were sending massive number of troops to, to some of these landing beaches. Uh, did they know what was coming? Uh, yes, they did. The Japanese actually knew exactly where and when the U.S. would invade. And this is because nearly all of Japan's coastal areas are too rocky and too steep to support amphibious landings. And the Japanese correctly guessed the only suitable landing beaches on Kyushu and on Honshu. Seasonal patterns also help the Japanese correctly guess when Olympic and Coronet will take place. So the Japanese had our number 
U.S. troops would be walking into a bloodbath. Wow. You know, I think a lot of people believe that uh, the Japanese were down to uh, civilians with bamboo spears and, and they didn't have a very good defense. Uh, that's incorrect. Tell us about Japan's defense. Had there been an invasion? Yeah, well, the Japanese actually had a very elaborate defensive plan that was called Operation Ketsugo. Now, certainly the Japanese Navy had already been put out of action and Japanese air power was ineffective. But, like I mentioned earlier, the bulk of the Imperial Japanese Army remains unbloodied and undefeated. So Ketsugo involves several Japanese Army divisions defending the, phone, the, defending the home islands, including divisions brought over from China, as well as a civilian population that is trained to kill American invaders and sacrifice their own lives in defense of the homeland. Pacific uh, fighting had demonstrated that the Japanese Army is not very good at carrying out offensive operations against U.S. forces, but they are masters at defensive operations like on Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Also, the Japanese had been hoarding fuel, aircraft, and other weapons in anticipation of a U.S. invasion of Japan. During Phase 1, Operation Olympic, the Japanese will hit Americans with 5,000 kamikazes, 800 suicide speedboats, 350 suicide subs, and 1,000 manned torpedoes. And the Japanese planners expect that 20% American casualties will occur before a U.S. soldier or Marine even steps one foot on a Japanese beach. And the reason we know this is because U.S. intelligence discovered these weapons and plans for Operation Ketsugo during the occupation of Japan after the war. Now, MacArthur, who would have commanded the U.S. invasion of Japan, he dismissed U.S. intelligence reports during the lead-up to the invasion, which indicated that the Japanese were very well prepared. MacArthur would have been proven wrong had the invasion gone forward. Now, the Japanese expect to win this decisive battle in their homeland. Their definition of victory is to make the invasion of Japan so bloody that the American people will refuse to accept the grim losses and will pressure U.S. leaders to call for a truce that leaves the militarist in charge of the Japanese government and much of Japan's imperial possession intact. Some Japanese leaders estimate that up to 20 million Japanese out of a population of 100 million will be killed in the invasion. This leaves 80 million Japanese to carry on the empire after the Americans are sent back home. Well, all right, uh, we're getting behind on this, Jeff. Uh, you, you're so interesting to talk to. Very briefly, uh, uh, is it true that the Japanese civilians would have fought to the death? Well, fortunately, we'll never know for sure. I believe many Japanese civilians probably would have fought to the death, some out of devotion to the emperor, but others because they felt they had no choice. Uh, many Japanese believe the war could not be won, but they meekly went along with the military and government so that if Japan did lose, the Japanese people would not be blamed for the loss. So not all Japanese people were brainwashed fanatics. Now, although the Japanese government continued to reassure the Japanese people that victory was at hand, many Japanese could read a map. They knew Japan's defensive buffer in the Pacific kept shrinking and getting closer to the home island. They knew Japanese cities were being destroyed by U.S. air raids. Yet there were some diehards, obviously, that continued to believe Japan would win, 
because they had been doc- they had been indoctrinated uh, to believe that Japan is invincible. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned previously uh, General George Marshall advocated dropping atomic bombs during the invasion. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Marshall, uh, like I said, he believed that dropping atomic bombs on Japanese cities was a waste of a weapon that could be better deployed in ground combat. So Marshall has written that he advocated dropping Hello. up to nine atomic bombs that would have been ready by November of 1945 for phase one of the invasion. Three atomic bombs would have been dropped on Japanese troops near the landing beaches in southern Kyushu shortly before U.S. troops invade. Three more atomic bombs would have been dropped further inland on Japanese support troops, and another three atom bombs would have been dropped on Japanese reinforcement troops coming from northern Kyushu. That's nine atomic bombs in a relatively small area. Now, at the time, U.S. scientists believed that the atomic mushroom cloud would suck radiation from the explosion thousands of feet into the sky, dispersing the radiation harmlessly in the atmosphere. Marshall assumed that U.S. troops would be exposed to some radiation, but he believed the radiation risk outweighed not using atomic bombs against Japanese defenders. So U.S. troops hitting the beaches of southern Kyushu under heavy machine gun and artillery fire would likely be wearing protective gear such as face masks. This is the ultimate nightmare scenario. Wow. All right, Jeff, we're going to go to our our, uh, last break. Uh, we're going to pick up about the chemicals that may have been used against invading troops. Uh, we'll be right back. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back with Jeff Johnson, expert on the plan invasion of Japan. Jeff, do you believe that the Japanese will use chemical weapons against us? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think chemical weapons would have been used by both the Japanese and the Americans. Uh, the U.S. was stockpiling chemical weapons for the planned invasion, 
And uh, George Marshall actually advocated using these chemical weapons, and he regretted that the U.S. had not used chemical weapons on Japanese defenders on Iwo Jima. Marshall believed that the use of chemical weapons is no more inhumane than using flamethrowers, and he has a good point there. Uh, the lessons of Iwo Jima and Okinawa were fresh in the minds of U.S. planners. At this point in the war with Japan, there are no holds barred. No quarter will be asked or given by either side. So U.S. planners realize that with the invasion of Japan, they are, they are walking into a new holocaust and must defeat a fanatical enemy as quickly as possible by whatever means necessary. All right, well, if we had captured uh, southern Kakusha uh, during phase one, uh, what about phase two, uh, Operation Coronet? Tell us about that. Well, I don't think Coronet in March of 1946 would have been any easier. Phase one in Kyushu involved a lot of fighting in rural areas and in some cities. Phase two in Honshu would have involved a lot of urban street-to-street and house-to-house fighting, nearly from the Honshu landing beaches to places like Yokohama and finally into Tokyo. I used to live in this area of Japan, and I can tell you that it is the perfect environment for grueling urban warfare. U.S. forces would have to contend with winding streets that send you in circles and with multiple river and stream crossings over bridges that were not designed for heavy armor. U.S. engineers would have to build bridge by bridge all the way up to Tokyo, and several field hospitals would have to be set up along the way. The U.S. Navy would have to tow artificial harbors into Tokyo Bay and build a temporary harbor like we saw with the Mulberry Harbors on the coast of Normandy during the D-Day invasion. All this would be happening while U.S. forces are under constant fire by a fanatical enemy as they slog northward to Tokyo to end the war by December of 1946. Uh, do you think the Japanese would have surrendered had we reached Tokyo? Well, I think it's impossible to know for sure. Uh, Japanese military leaders had a contingency plan, which involved moving the emperor from Tokyo to the city of Nagoya and into an elaborate underground bunker headquarters there. It's very possible that after the fall of Tokyo, the Japanese Imperial Army would fall back into the mountains. Uh, there's a mountainous region in Japan, of course, and fight a long, a decade-long, possibly, guerrilla war against U.S. forces, while Japanese forces remaining in China did the same. So even with the capture of Tokyo, there is no guarantee that Japan surrenders. So imagine one million U.S. casualties to get to Tokyo, in addition to the previous 400,000 U.S. casualties during World War II, and the Japanese still refused to give up, and they began fighting a guerrilla war. That would not have played well back home in the States. And this is just one more reason the U.S. decided to drop the atomic bombs in an effort to get the Japanese to surrender early so that this horrific and costly invasion of the home islands could be avoided. Unbelievable. Okay, 75th anniversary of the official surrender of the Empire of Japan. What do you want the people to remember most as we commemorate uh, this event? Well, a few things come to mind on that. I want people to realize that the United States very nearly invaded Japan. The Pacific War ended early, and another holocaust of the Second World War was avoided in large part due to the atomic bombs. 
I want people to understand that as horrible as the atomic bombs were, they really did save millions of lives, Japanese and American. And I say this as someone who married into a Japanese family with members that were nearly killed by the second atomic bomb. But I think the main thing I want people to remember on the 75th anniversary of the end of the Pacific War is the remarkable peace between America and Japan over the past 75 years. I don't think there is a better example in history, and this includes the American Civil War, of a magnanimous victor helping rebuild a defeated enemy and becoming great friends and allies. We're in Europe. A defeated Germany was occupied and partitioned between the Americans, English, French, and Soviets, resulting in half of Germany falling under communist control for 50 years. The occupation and rebuilding of Japan and the resulting peace and prosperity is a uniquely American achievement in partnership with a defeated enemy that we should be very proud of. I agree. A lot of people say the atomic bombs were never justified. What do you say about that? Well, I think there are some people who will never listen to reason, particularly in this day and age when many judge people and events of the past based on modern political correctness, and we criticize figures of the past for not being as virtuous as we are today, while partially or completely ignorant of the facts at the time of the historical event. You're never going to reach those people. I think the atomic bombs combined with the Soviet Union declaring war on Japan compelled Hirohito to stand up to the war faction in his leadership and accept the surrender terms of the Potsdam Declaration. Now, last month, during the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I saw some finger-pointing in the news and on social media, particularly blaming America and President Truman for dropping the atomic bombs. But I think if you are armed with the facts, you must conclude that the six-member militarist and Japan's Supreme Council for the Direction of the War, and to some extent, Emperor Hirohito, are responsible for the dropping of the atomic bombs. The atomic bombs were the best option for resolving a horrible, rotten mess with no easy way out. They were a cruel numbers game. Some people had to die so that many more people could live. People these days may not like to hear that, but I think the facts support that conclusion. And Pete, I know that you and I both know people who owe their lives to the atomic bombs, and I don't think that's hyperbole. No, I don't either, Jeff. You and I do know men that were uh, trained for that plane, uh, planned invasion of Japan, and they celebrated when they heard about the two atomic bombs being dropped. Uh, they knew, especially the first waves knew, that they were not going to survive uh, the initial invasion. Uh, I don't know how many lives would have been saved and how many men you and I would never have had a chance to talk to had the invasion took place. Uh, would any of our allies uh, have taken part in the invasion of Japan? Uh, yes, we would have had some support from the British and Australians, uh, but it would have been more token support. You have to understand that uh, the British were really worn out uh, on the uh, European war, and they felt like that they had bled more than the Americans, and they largely uh, considered the Pacific affair an American war. So there would have been some token divisions that would have been uh, participating from uh, uh, the UK and the Commonwealth. But like I said, just, just a token representation, I think. Wow. 
question. If some of our listeners would like to learn more about the presentation you give on this subject at museums and veterans meetings and, and other facilities, uh, how can they contact you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I could e- email, I think, is the best. My email is H-E-Y-I-T-Z-J-J at gmail.com. That's hey, it's JJ with a Z at gmail.com. Or Pete, they can probably contact me through the Atlanta World War II roundtable that uh, you command. So, uh, yeah, there's a couple of ways to get in touch with me, and I'd be happy to talk about giving uh, my presentation to a to, to your group or a museum or whatever. Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, we still have a couple minutes left. Jeff, have you visited Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, I haven't visited Hiroshima. I have visited Nagasaki, and... Uh, it, it, you can hardly tell that an atomic bomb went off there. Uh, I mean, uh, Ground Zero is a lovely park. There are a few ruins. There is a uh, there is a, an atomic bomb museum that the Japanese have that you can visit. Uh, but otherwise, if you were being dropped right at Ground Zero, having no idea where you suddenly appeared, you would never imagine that an atomic bomb went off there. Hmm. Uh, Jeff, there was there was a typhoon that slammed into Okinawa uh, shortly after J- Japanese announced that they would surrender. That typhoon destroyed a lot of our fleet. Uh, it would uh, uh, probably impacted the invasion of Japan. Would, do you agree with that? Yeah, that was actually called Typhoon Louise. It hit, it slammed right into Okinawa just weeks after the Japanese on uh, August 14th uh, announced their intention to surrender. That typhoon severely damaged a lot of equipment and uh, supplies, that typhoon would have actually delayed the invasion of Japan uh, probably into 1946. So X day, the invasion of Kyushu, would have been 1946. Uh, the invasion of Honshu at Tokyo, maybe 1946, late in that year. I mean, that typhoon maybe would have extended the Pacific War by maybe two more years. Huh. Interesting question. Uh, do the Japanese people, are they going to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of the Pacific War, or do they just rather forget about it? Tell us about that. Well, I've got Japanese TV here at home. I'll have to watch it later tonight. But, but I was watching Japanese TV about the 75th commemoration of the atomic bombs, and I noticed the Japanese people, uh, or Japanese TV, I should say, spent a lot more time reflecting on that event than I saw back home in the U.S. Our news channels here hardly... You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.